Hi, this is Nathan Johnson. In this sermon, you will freshly discover that just as athletes remove every hindrance in order to win, so too Christians must be willing to cast off everything that distracts and press forward with endurance the race set before us. Though it will not be easy, God desires to make us fit and ready for what lies ahead and not hindered by self-satisfaction or weighed down by our appetites. Coming in at number 8 in our countdown of the top 10 most difficult sermons delivered by Eric Ludi, this sermon is often listed as one of Ellerslie's most convicting sermons. Now get ready to listen to this week's encore edition of Eric Ludi's sermon, The Proving of the 300. The Proving of the 300. Uh, and then I have a subtitle for this one, A Very Convicting Message about appetite. This has been a really challenging message for me to prepare, and I'm not saying I'm dragging my heels in preparing it and in giving it, I'm just feeling it. And it touches us, especially those of us that were groomed in our Christianity in America. We have natural defense systems to this message. There's gonna be things almost like pre-planted notions or quotes that you can bring out as I'm preaching this message and be like, well, what about this? It's just really funny how we are groomed in this culture. Not funny, I guess that's probably not the right word for it. But there's certain things that are planted strategically so that we would not go in this direction. This is the preparation of a soldier for battle. And yet most of us think it's a time of peace. And as a result, we live as if it's a time of peace. We live as if this is just a vacation time here on earth. And we don't realize that we're in the midst of hostility and a war. And so that's when the proving of the 300 comes. Oh, the proving of the 300. This goes back to the book of Judges, chapter 5 or 6. I think it starts in 6, not positive of what the exact start of the story of Gideon is. And, but with the story of Gideon, I'm not going to go through the story of Gideon, but I'm going to go through one little dimension of it. And that is the Midianites have been plundering. Every time crop season comes, harvest season comes, the Midianites come and they rob Israel of their crop. I mean, they're living in, as a result, Israel's living in absolute poverty. In comes God because the people of Israel cry out. That's what happens to many of us. We can't figure out why our crop continues to be plundered. We are living in weakness and in poverty, and finally we decide to turn away from our sin and turn unto God and say, God, I need a rescuer. So he calls on Gideon. And it's a great story, and the raising up of Gideon is extremely fascinating. The story itself is an amazing story, but I just want to cut to the chase. You see, it's time to go to battle against 135,000 Midianites. Now, it says there were 120,000 that died, and so for those of you that are good with your math, but then there was 15 more thousand across the Jordan. Either they escaped or they were waiting in the wings, not sure, but it's a big crowd that Gideon took on 135,000. So if you're going to take on 135,000 armed men, I mean, what do you need? You need at least 135,001, don't you? Last man standing? In other words, you need to equal their power. You need to have some kind of way to answer that sort of strength. And yet God thinks different. And this is what is so significant about this message is God has chosen us to be his armed forces. And if you've ever studied you, you would know that you're 
fairly weak and pathetic when it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to moral matters, when it comes to doing the right thing consistently, you're not that impressive. See, you might look good on paper if someone looked at your education, but you don't look good when it comes to the measurement of your excellence of soul, the purity of your thought life, the emotional center of your being. Is it constant? Is it level? Or is it up and down and all over the place? You see, we are unstable, and yet God has chosen us as his armed forces, it's just sort of a ridiculous thought. The proving of the 300. The day has come. 135,000 Midianites have gathered in the valley, and Gideon blows his horn. And so 32,000 Israelites gather for war. 32,000. By the way, I don't know if, if you, again, if you know math, 135,000 is a lot bigger number than 32,000. I mean, this is a small little band next to the monstrous force of the Midianites. And they're a hungry band. They have not eaten well for a long time. So we have a weak army. And God goes to work on that weak army, known as us. And that's the proving of the 300. Starts with 32,000 warriors show up for war. But 31,700 of them are sent packing. You're not ready, says God. Out. Okay, we got 135,000 Midianites in the valley. 32,000 Israelites show up and say, all right, we're here. God sends 31,700 of them packing. You see, there were 300 that were proven ready. Out of 32,000, only 300 were proven ready. In this room, that would be around 2.8 of us. Out of this room, if God came and he says, it's time, right now, 2.8 of us would be ready. The rest of us would be excused. That's a pretty serious breakdown of an army. That's why let's allow God to go to work now so when he comes, 300 are ready. Judges 7, then Jerubbaal, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, mine own hand hath saved me. You have too many. You have 32,000. That's like one in four. So each guy could take on four, and he could think he did that himself. It's too many. You have 32,000. It's way, way too many. Uh, God, there's 135,000 of them? Yeah, 32,000, way too many. Because even Israel taking on one against four, they could still think they did it. So no, no. So... Now, therefore, go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. So if we were going to be thrown into prison, if we were going to be tortured as Christians, and we were to ask the simple question, so how many of you are afraid? How many of you are fearful? And probably a good chunk of us might raise our hand. <laughs> That's only reasonable, isn't it? We'd be excused. Just immediately set apart a from there. It's an immediate purification of the environment. Get out the fearful, get out the afraid. 
We don't need that in battle. And there returned to the people 20 and 2,000. And there remained 10,000. So 22,000 out of the 32,000 left. That leaves 10,000. So it's one against 13. The people are yet too many. Oh, and the Lord said unto Gideon, the people are yet too many. One against 13. That's too many? And I will tr- so bring them down under the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. God is going to try them at the water. So they're brought down to the river, and God is trying them. They're thirsty. They've been working hard, training for battle. Take a drink, says Gideon. How they take the drink defines if they're going to be part of the 9,700 that are going to be excused, or they're going to be part of the 300 that remain. So if I ask you, you're thirsty. There's water. You're even told that you can drink. How you drink defines everything. If you're ready for battle or not, if you're going to be used by God or not. How you drink? That's right. How you drink from that river is going to define it. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people under the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth, him shall thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink, and the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were 300 men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the 300 men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all the other people go every man unto his place. So the people took victuals in their hand and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man unto his tent, and retained those 300 men. And the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. There's 135,000 armed Midianites. God has just cut his army down to 300, but what was his deciding factor? His deciding factor was how they drank from the river. They're thirsty. It's just a natural quality that we have as humans. We're thirsty. But how you handle your appetite will define if you're ready for battle or not. Now, this is, to be honest, not the clearest description for us. Lappeth like a dog. Okay, now, not many of us lap like a dog. And so I don't have a full understanding of what that meant to them. But here's the concept. The one that came and approached the river and just flattened himself and stuck his face down in there and lost all sense of protectiveness. In other words, he's in the midst of a battle. The Midianites are down in the valley. But for a brief moment, he's going to satisfy his thirst and forsake any need to be a soldier. And so he's going to plant himself in the water. That's what it means to get down on your knees and go flap right into the water. However, the ones that lap like a dog, I know that's not the way we would say it. There's a lot better ways that we would say it. But the one that still stands upright, when a dog eats, his legs are still straight. In other words, cups it and brings it to his mouth. That means in one hand he still has his weapon, and in the other hand he can drink. He satisfies his appetite, but he satisfies his appetite with circumspection. He knows his environment, and he recognizes that to allow the cravings or the appetite that he has to bring him low and to make this about him, as opposed to about the fact that his nation, his, the women and children of this nation are under siege, is one who is not fit for battle. 
We just lost 9,700 men. And in this room, I don't know if it's safe to say we might have lost every single one of us. In the American culture, we are trained to stick our face in the water. We are trained to have time for us. It's called me time. If you take me time, you're gone. It's that simple. If you want to be in God's army, there's no such thing as me time. Every moment of every day is God time. I can't live like that. I can't stay consistent like that. I know you can't, but the one who trains his soldiers can. Presumptuous sins. What was the problem of those 9,700? They presumed. They always drink water that way. Water, they're thirsty. It doesn't matter how they drink it, does it? God made me with an appetite. He's the one that made me this way. I mean, what what does he expect? It's called presumption. Where you finish the sentence, God made me to drink, so therefore I can drink any way I want. God is the one that gave me an appetite for food, therefore I can eat anything I want, anytime I want, any amount I want. God's the one that made me a man with cravings and longings, so I can do that and handle that area of my life any way I see fit. It's called the sin of presumption. And presumptuous sins are what will remove you from Gideon's men. Out, out. So presumptuous sins, not realizing that our appetites ought not to drive us. You see, you may have thirst, but your thirst is not supposed to be the lead instrument in your life. You may have hunger, and it's nothing, there's nothing wrong with your hunger. God still satisfies hunger, but how you handle your hunger is everything for a soldier. You may be a sexual being. You may have the capacity for sleep, but if you allow these things to lead you, you allow your appetite to lead you and to stick your face in the river, and you lose all circumspection, the ability to see that which is dangerous around you, then you will be excused from the battle. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. You know what? I think all of us could be praying that prayer today as we go into this. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. You see, the way that our lives begin to break down is from presumptuous sins. It's how we handle the appetites in the small moments. It's how you handle the cinnamon roll and how you handle your alarm clock in the morning. If you do not handle those things properly, as a result, the greater transgression is knocking at your door. If you learn to handle the soul well and to allow the Spirit of God to deal with the appetite dimension of your life, you are built for Gideon's army, and you are built in the time of war to be hand-selected by God for the most difficult challenges. And you will pass them, not because of your grandeur and your ability and your might, but because appetite does not rule you, the Spirit of God rules you. Our problem, very simply put, we think we're just fine. Why do I need this message? I don't have any issue with appetite. Well, that is compared with everyone else around you. When you live in a wanton culture like we have, in other words, a lust-driven culture, when people want something, they get it. When people feel something, they go after it. They satisfy craving. And then here we are at this church. You're not satisfying craving by coming and hearing sermons like this. It's miserable. 
Who wants to hear something like that? So you're deliberately bypassing your pleasures to come and allow God to speak. And yet, we still have subtle justifications in our life. And this is why this has been a very difficult week for me in studying this, because God is putting his finger on little things, little things that don't really need to have any attention brought to them. Thank you, God. You know, couldn't we just overlook? I'm so much better than them, 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 and them. Why do you need to bring that up? Because I'm looking for men that are ready for war. And right now, Eric, by the way, the war in the future is not going to look like this. It's going to be very intense. And you need to be able to go without. You need to be prepared for difficulty. After all, isn't serving our appetites just normal human behavior? Well, sure. And yeah, we try not to do those extreme things, but we serve our appetites at a certain level. What do you feel like? What what do you crave today? How many of us even answer that question? We know the answer to that question. I mean, I grew up with, what sort of movie do you feel like tonight? It wasn't ever a question of if I should even be watching a movie. It was, what sort of movie? What sort of dessert do you feel like? (laughs) Never any question of if I should actually continue eating. You see, we don't ask that question. That's legalism. You notice the reason why we stay far and away from this message is because, we, first of all, we don't want it. Second of all, we brandished it as legalism if you even get close to it. That's trying to earn righteousness or work righteousness into heaven. No, you're in Christ. That's how you get the favor of God. However, if you want to be useful in his kingdom, if you want to be one of his men that he can utilize to deal with the Midianites in this generation, then you need to be a man who, when he comes to the river, picks it up with his hand and keeps his sword in the other does not mean God will not satisfy your thirst. He will. But he will not satisfy your thirst the way the flesh wants you to. In other words, the flesh propensity to plant your face in the water and lose all perspective of the battle in which you are in just to satisfy your cravings is not how God will do it. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. When we approach that river, there's a way that seems right unto us. We've been trained in it. This is what our parents did. This is what our brothers and sisters did. You just come down, get on your knees, and plant your face in the water. It's a little me time. Hey, I'm thirsty. I've been working hard. I deserve this. There's a way that seems right unto a man. It leads unto death. In the midst of a battle, you're a dead man if you do that. You see, the the devil's just waiting for you to plant your face in the river. He's got you. You're helpless. There's no defense. He's got you right where he wants you. And so how you train to drink from that river will define your ability to stay alive in the battle. So I changed the scripture just a bit. And I'm not altering scripture. I'm just expanding it for our understanding today. So where it says there's a way that seems right unto a man, I put it in parentheses, a man's body. Because this is what we're talking about. We're talking about appetites. Appetites have a voice. Have you ever noticed that? They talk. They have an opinion. They have thoughts. They have cravings, and they make those cravings known to us. Have you ever noticed that sometimes that volume is turned up really loud? And you know exactly what your body is wanting. Well, there's a way that seems right to your body. You ever notice that your body craves things that kill it? It's a really strange thing. Just listen to your body one day. I'm not necessarily encouraging you to do this, truly. But if you do listen to your body, 
what you're going to find is it's going to lead you towards everything that would kill you. Just think about it. When it comes to sleep, how many hours does your body want to sleep? All day long, every day. How about eating? Do you think your body has ever told you anything wise as far as what you should be eating? If you go after what your body craves, you're going to probably triple in size in one week. How about your sexuality? If you went after what your body was wanting, you would destroy your life and other lives almost instantaneously. We don't listen to our body. There's a way that seems right unto man's body, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Our body is not right. Our body is not meant to be the lead instrument and our counselor. Listen to your body. No, that's not what my, my opinion or counsel is going to be for you. Listen to the word of God about your body. Your body will deceive you. It's known as the flesh in scripture. In other words, your body's saying, come on, just a little me time. Plant the face. Gratify yourself. Don't heed the body. Heed the one who created the body and wants to restore the body unto working order. Your body is not the problem. But if your body is given too high of a position in your life, it will be part of the problem. You see, your appetites are actually not your problem. It's the fact that you are wielding those appetites for the gratification of self instead of the glory of Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with the fact that you eat. It's how you eat. There's nothing wrong with the fact that you're thirsty or that you need to sleep. It's how you do those things. There's nothing wrong with you being a man or a woman sexually. It's how you handle your sexuality. These things are not your problem. It's how you are handling them. The natural cravings of the body, we'll call it the six appetites. The appetite for food and drink, the appetite for the possession of things. It's a strange thing that we would want things, if I could just have that. You see, we need things for life. If all you have is nothing, you're sort of bad off. You need clothes, you need shelter, you need some type of transportation. You need things. You need money to be able to live. Otherwise, you just die. And so it is true that we need things, but that can become an appetite that runs us, that rules us. And in America, it's called materialism. The appetite for sleep, the appetite for sensual pleasure, the appetite for expression or the need to say something, the need to talk, the need to express yourself. We all have this thing inside of us. It's like we want to be known. We want to be understood. And the appetite for information. This was the sixth one that I tagged on. Because it is one that I don't know who else struggles with it, but even if it's just for me, I stuck it on. I need to know. I need to understand what's going on out there. I, my great susceptibility is like a news feed. And I literally have had to say no to news feeds because I want to be connected. And if there's a game going on, like last Sunday, it was the Denver Broncos, Kansas City Chiefs, and I was, <clears throat> I haven't been following the Broncos all year. However, I'm a Bronco fan in my history, and it has a way of knocking. King, King, hey, Eric, what do you think the score is? What do you think is going on right now? I, I don't know, but I'm focusing on my kids right now, whatever that voice is, and I'm really trying to be a good father right now. I wonder what is going on. The appetite for information. It's where gossip comes from, by the way. I want to know. I want to know. I always look at women 
when they're you know, wanting to know all these juicy details, I'm like, what, in the, what a weird thing to focus on. How much did the baby weigh? How long was it? What, who cares? But we as men do the same thing, just with different arenas of life. So here's, here's a different quote. And whereas you can't find this exact quote in the Bible, I'm saying that the quoter, the one, the quotee, is the Bible. There is a way that is right unto God, and the end thereof is life. So there's a way that seems right unto man's body, and it leads to death. But there's a way, known as Jesus Christ, he is the way, that leads unto life, and the end thereof is life. So dealing with the appetites. Four gradients of inner control. So when the river is beneath your feet, and you approach that river, let's just sort of do a quick test on how we all handle the river. Number one, the open door policy. What the appetite wants, the appetite gets. So this is sort of hospitality. It's just the concept of, oh, an open door. Whatever wants to come in can come in. So when you get down to that river, it's just, what do you feel like? If I came up to you and said, what do you feel like? I'm just so thirsty, I could plant my face in that water. That's what you do then. And that's, if you have no governance at all over your appetites, then you will look like the fool and the mongrel with your face in the water, probably just splashing it all over the place, not caring at all about anyone around you, but you're satisfying what you have to satisfy, your cravings. So that's level one. Hopefully we're not struggling with that in here. The curbed appetites. This is where a lot of us come in. You see, you grew up around the church, and so therefore you need to show a little decorum. You need to show a little balance to these things because otherwise the community in which you live will frown. And so you're attempting to curb your appetites. So you're strong against some things but an open door to others. Like there's other areas where you just sort of let it all hang out. But there's other areas, especially when people are watching, that you're very conscientious about and you will be restrained in it. Some of us in this room, that's exactly the way we are. And so we have our church dimension to our life and the areas that we sort of know in our Christianity we need to be controlled in, but then we will gorge ourselves in another arena, like food. And it's like, well, that doesn't matter. That doesn't affect my spiritual life at all. Who told you that? It's actually not what the Bible says. The Bible calls it temperance. In other words, it's a measured restraint to the soul, to the appetites in every situation. There is never a moment, never a day of the year. There is never an exception to it. We are restrained and temperate always. Three, the intentional defense. And I'd say this is where a lot of us are, what could I say, desiring to live or attempting to live, purposeful to repel, strong at times, yet not totally consistent in all arenas. Well, that probably described a lot of us in here. In other words, there is a rousing soul movement for us. We're like, I will not give way to that anymore. Dear Lord Jesus, help me. But it's an intentional defense, but I would say it's not totally consistent in all arenas. And I want to give the fourth one, the armed heavenly vault. Empowered to repel, empowered to restrain, empowered to say no, empowered to keep a sound mind at all times, and empowered to stay consistent. This is Jesus Christ. He was temperate. He was controlled at all times. His soul was governed by the Spirit of God. This is what we esteem, and this is what we have access to. What's your position, by the way? If you're in Jesus Christ, you're in the one who is not ruled by appetite. 
And get this, if you're in Jesus Christ, you're brought under the throne room of grace where you can come boldly to obtain mercy and grace for help in time of need. So when you come down to that river and you are really thirsty, guess what? The very one who has truly a temperate attitude, a temperate soul, not ruled by appetite, you're not just clothed in him, but he makes you his clothing. And he dwells inside of you for those very moments so that when you come down to that river, there is a restraint, there is a power within. Typically, it is termed self-control. That's called a fruit of the spirit. And I'll teach you about it in just a second. A man and his appetite. Controlled appetite equates to excellence of life. And I could say the opposite too. It could be one of those Chinese proverbs. A man who cannot control his appetite has a miserable life. It sounds like a man who has an uncontrolled appetite just devours anything he wants would be a happy man, doesn't it? When in fact the opposite is true. It is a man who is governed in his soul, that is restrained in his soul and in his appetites, that is the truly happiest man. See, some of you don't believe me, though. But that is truly the happiest man. His joy is full. But that is because he is not ruled by appetite. He's ruled by something much greater than appetite. Second Peter, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. So you have faith. So Peter says, let's add to that faith. With all diligence, let's apply something to it. And so add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance. So in this construction of one known as the mighty Christian, way in the beginning of these seven building blocks, because these are called the seven graces, we have something called temperance. Add to your knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacks these things is blind. So if you lack temperance, if I'm going to be very specific here, if you lack temperance, you're considered, according to Scripture, blind and cannot see afar off. You're not going to see the Midianites coming, are you? And hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Oh, you forgot that, didn't you? You see, you're going right back to the same power of indulgence that killed you before. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. You see, these are the guardians of the soul. When you believe God, then come to God and with diligence add and allow the spiritual life to be constructed after his pattern. You see, you're not supposed to show up on the day of battle and be fearful. And some of you can say, well, how do you help that? It's called the gospel. When Jesus gets a hold of your life, he deals with anxiety and fear. When you show up at that battle, you're not supposed to see a river, stick your face into it, and give way to all your own self-indulgence. You're supposed to keep sword in hand and keep your eyes wide open and be circumspect to where the enemy is at all times. You are supposed to be temperate. You're supposed to be controlled. You're supposed to be governed, not by appetite, but by God. Egretea. See, at the very top, that's our Greek word, egretea, which is translated typically as temperance or as self-control in the newer translations. The word self-control, which I grew up with, I didn't grow up with the word temperance. 
I grew up with the word uh, self-control. But what I thought self-control was, and you can correct me if you think uh, you know, that you had it all figured out, but I thought it was me attempting con- to control my body. It's like, I can do this. All right, so I just need to control my body. So my mom would always say things like, you know, Eric, you need a little self-control. So what am I thinking that is? All right, I need to try and stand still without fussing, without pulling on her arm saying, Mom, when are we going to go? I need to be self-controlled, which is not completely false, mind you, but that's actually not how self-control works. It's not me looking into my pockets and pulling out strength. It's me, as a little child, digging into God's pocket and pulling out strength. He's the one that has the power to control this body. I don't. So here's what egretia is, or temperance or self-control. It's the strength of God made manifest in the saints in order to guard and control the body, shielding it from every fiery dart of the enemy. It's a God-enabled governor of every operation of the body. We could say every appetite. A divinely empowered control over appetite, sleep, and sexuality. It's the strength and authority to not allow sin to reign any longer in the body. Did you know that you have this in Christ Jesus? Did you know this is just sitting there waiting to be had? Let's just be honest. Most of us don't want it. We actually prefer. We want to be a Christian, but we want to satisfy our own appetites. We don't want to have to give up that. If you, if you keep satisfying your appetites, you're not fit for war. That simple. If you want to be the sort that God can use in this generation, then you have to understand why he died on the cross and what he gave you. And if you don't add to what God has given you, if you don't add temperance, if you don't add egretia, you're going to die in this battle. This is of the utmost importance. When you splash that face of yours into the water, the Midianites are going to come out and they're going to get you. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. What? Egretia. You know that this comes from the Spirit? One of the evidences that God has taken the reins of your life. One of the evidences that God has moved in. One of the evidences that you truly are a Christian is that you bear the fruit of a Christian. You will know my disciples by their love. Another way of saying that is by their fruit. You will know them by their fruit. Well, what's the fruit? Well, one of them is Egretia. You, know, you will know my disciples because they're not ruled by their appetites. Their appetites are under control. Isn't that a fascinating thought? You will be recognized as a Christian in this world by the fact that your appetites don't rule you, but you rule your appetites. The dangers of allowing the appetites to control. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. In the Old Testament, we have a parallel. We have Joshua entering the land of Canaan. And that land of Canaan has 31 hostile empires in it. And he is leading the children of Israel across the Jordan to fight Jericho, Ai, and so on. All these different empires. And so there's a warning that is given in Numbers. And it is when you go in, make sure you deal with every single one of those enemies. If you allow any enemy to remain, he gives a warning. He says, if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes, which, by the way, does not sound like a very pleasant thing, and thorns in your sides, and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. 
All right, so you're coming into the life of a Christian. You're coming into the power of the Almighty. If you do not allow the power of the Almighty to deal with all these different elements of your life that have caused you problems in the past, if you do not give them over to him and allow Joshua, it's the same name as Jesus, to come in and drive out these issues, these indulgences, well, they will be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides. It will, and some of you have proven this many times over. You see, you keep justifying your issue with sleep, and you keep saying, it doesn't matter that much. I personally need this much sleep. You've told yourself that so many times that you allow a laxness in your soul, and your study time and your prayer time stinks because of it. You have no definition to your discipline of life. None of it. It's just completely sort of like a round belly. The blub, blub, blub. It doesn't have any order or physique to it. You cannot see the six, remember that six pack? Can't see it in your spiritual life. It's just a big gut because you've allowed an appetite to be justified in your midst. You said, you can stay here. Hey, you should get out, but you can stay here. I really love my sleep. You see, you can say that till the cows come home, but as long as you allow it to remain in the land, it will be a prick in your eye and it will be a thorn in your side. You are meant to demonstrate to the heavenlies what it looks like when a man or a woman of God is controlled by the Spirit of God. The power of Egretea. So here we are. This is Joshua entering the land. This is like Jesus entering your body. How does Joshua enter your body? Yeshua, Jesus. And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he swore to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it. And dwelt therein, and the Lord gave them rest round about, according to all that he swore unto their fathers, and there stood not a man. How, how could I say this? There stood not one of the appetites of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. All the appetites came under control. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. Everything that God promises will be done. You see, our lives have been unkempt, have been disorderly, and we keep blaming it on the fact that, well, you know, hey, we're human. I have appetites. I have needs. And we say, but I've turned to Jesus, and he covers over all these things. I'm not saying that there isn't hope at the cross. I'm not saying there isn't a remedy at the cross. But the cross doesn't just cover. The cross changes. The cross alters the way you live. So if, and I've used this illustration many times, if you had $20 uh, up here on the stage, and I tell you, it's yours, and you've been poor all these years, say, hey, yeah, humans are just poor. And you keep going out to eat after church, and you never have money, so you're always like, yeah, can you pay for this? And you have your justification. Yeah, I came from a poor family. I've always been poor. I never have money. I always have to ask people to help. And yet, look, I've given you something. You know that before when you were just living in ignorance, all of us could wink at that and say, you know what, I can understand. I can understand you came from a poor family. You've never learned how to work. Yeah, we can understand that. However, you came to the cross. And now you have the God of you know, Jehovah Almighty working for you. And he has given you all you need so that you can't just take care of your meal, but now you can start taking care of all the others that are like you, that have the same heritage as you. And you could say, look, I'm going to take care of this meal, and I want you to know that there is something waiting for you at the cross. You have all you need to live this life well. But if someone like that, you know that they know, 
and that they have the resources to be able to live different and they don't, it's a pretty serious thing. You've been given that which you need to live well. Take it, use it. Dealing with the small stuff. Order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Any. Any failure of soul. Any looseness of life. Any blubbering. I always like call it the blubbering. It's the lack of being in shape spiritually. And as I go through these different appetites, yes, I too am touched by these things. I too live in one of these things called a body. And I too have appetites. And I too really like my certain drink. Jai, tea. I don't drink coffee like all those other people. I drink something that sounds a little strange and odd. It sounds sort of healthy, but it's full of sugar. I also have a hankering for a good version of root beer. It's not that bad, is it? It's not that big of a deal. You know how many of us do this at every area of our life, every turn? We have our chai and we have our root beer. And you're like, those things are disgusting. Well, you have your thing. Just fill in the gaps. It's not poison. It's not cocaine. I'm not that bad. However, it's an appetite. And when it comes down to it, I'm thinking, I probably should step back from that. I probably shouldn't just order root beer every single time I go out. Y'all have a root beer? It just comes out. Why? Because the appetite still has the edge. As opposed to coming to God and saying, God, that will not rule. Is a root beer the end of the world? No. It's when the root beer controls you. As opposed to the spirit of God controlling you. That is the issue. Keep back, my, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lusts thereof, in the appetites thereof. 1 Corinthians 9. Know you not that, you, that they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain, and every man that strives for the mastery is egratumai. Remember our word, our Greek word, egratea. You know what that is? That's just a different variation of the same word. It's saying... The one who strives for masteries to do this well, to live with diligence and excellence, as if he's an athlete training, is egratumai, controlled in all things. He is temperate and self-controlled in every appetite. So for the master, for the man, every man that strives for the mastery is egratumai in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, says Paul, not as uncertainly, so I fight, not as one that beats the air, but I keep my body, I keep under my body, which means I keep my body under control. I keep it under control. Where do you think self-control comes from? Body control. It is literally a fruit of the Spirit. Paul kept his body under. The appetites were not in control of Paul. Paul was in control of his appetites. So it says, but I keep my, under my body, my body under control, and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. How embarrassing would it be for all of us in here to have taken a stand in this generation for the truth of Jesus Christ and then to have Gideon show up 
And then God says, and I'll try them for you today. And all of us are dismissed. We thought we were all that. I mean, look, I'm, I'm pretty important, you know, and I, I stand for truth in the gospel. You know what? Are we keeping our body under? Are we living with excellency and striving for mastery? Or are we excusing ourselves based on the fleshiness of the culture around us and saying, but we are better than that? We're at least not that bad. We're not doing that. We're not that extreme. The anatomy of self-control, or egretea. How does it work? First, I, or self, must be controlled, submitted, subjected to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the rule of the Spirit of God, and the authority of the word of Scripture. So our problem as just humans on this earth that are born as the descendants of Adam is that we have an issue. We have claimed control over our life. And so in a sense, we are self-controlled. That's what's really funny about the word self-control. Our whole problem is we are controlled by self. Self is sitting on the throne. We are not meant to be self-controlled in that sense. We are meant to be spirit-controlled, Jesus-controlled. And so what the gospel does is it frees us from this throne. And it says, step down, Eric. I've untied the ropes that bind you there. And we step down and we bend our knee and we declare that he is Lord. And he takes the throne. And now he's in control of our body. However, this is where, that's why I'm writing it out. First, for self-control, for true temperance to work in the body. I, or self, must be controlled. For me to be useful in this thing called Christianity unto God, I must first come under the control of the Spirit of God. Now I speak with authority in my body. I am submissive to the one that sits on the throne. And now I look at my body, I look at my appetites, and I tell them what they're going to do. And if they look back at me and say, who are you to tell me what to do? You've always been controlled by us. I say, look who controls me, the Spirit of God and it silences them. You see, I am controlled by the Spirit of God. Now I have the power and the authority to control my appetites by the power that dwells within me. Then it is no longer I who lives or controls the body, but Christ who lives within the body. Thus, I is now in its proper position, crucified yet alive, denied and yet yielded, to behave as it ought, it is now able to exert the authority of Jesus Christ over the body, its impulses, its weaknesses, and its fleshly longings. And finally, self is now controlled by Jesus in order to now control the body as it ought. So when we are as we ought to be, we are controlled by Jesus. We, meaning I or self, is controlled by Jesus. And then where's our body? It's controlled by us. So it's self-control. I know that sounds strange, and the terminology might need to be corrected. It's temperance. Appetites under control. You dictate to your appetites what they're going to do. And when your appetites talk back and say, hey, you can't tell me what to do, you say, I can because I'm speaking in the authority of the one who tells me what to do. And that is Jesus Christ, the Word of God. What he says goes in this body. Your body's not going to like it at first, and I can tell you that right now. I can tell you some of you are already having a little discussion with that body of yours. You don't like this message. You're a little disturbed that you came today. And I haven't even gotten specific. <clears throat> the concept of business capital. 
You guys ever heard of capital? Capital. Capital is the sum of money or stock which a merchant banker or manufacturer employs in his business. It's sort of that there's starting capital, there is invested capital, but it's that which you need. In other words, if you wanted to go out and start a business, you need money. You can't just buy a building or rent a building or buy a machine to produce something without money, and that's called capital. And so what you need to be able to go about and do a business is you need something first. Someone could invest it, or you could have it in a savings account. It doesn't matter where it comes from. You need it. Without business capital, you can't move forward and produce more money. Okay? So I know this sounds like a strange thing. What does this have to do with this message? Well, the concept of Christian capital. Christian capital is the sum of grace entrusted to the servant by the king. For instance, the talents or talents of gold or the mina of gold, where the king comes down and he says, here, I'm trusting you with this so that you can start the business. Here, I'm giving you this so that you can behave as you ought to in this world. Remember all those parables that Jesus gives? He gave grace. He gave a trust. However, how they handle that trust is everything. So, so they're given capital by which the king proves the serpent, servant and deems him either faithful or unfaithful. You are being deemed faithful or unfaithful based on how you are handling the trust that you've been given. You've been given something to control all the appetites in your body. What are you doing with it? It's like, well, I don't really want to let them be controlled. I, I really like it when they control me. Do you? Do you really like that? You're like, well, okay, Eric, I don't totally like it all the time. There's certain moments, though, you just, I really do. This is a very difficult issue for us. Some of us have controlled aspects or some of our appetites, but there's still the lingering ones that are slipping through and they're behaving with a reckless abandon in our life. And they're affecting our, our lives, our prayer time. For instance, when you're sleeping through, every time you say, God, I'll meet you. I'll meet you at 5.30 tomorrow morning. And then you sleep through it every time. Guess what? Your appetite is actually showing disregard and disrespect to the king of kings. I don't know if you ever thought that through. If you did that to the president of the United States, it'd be a pretty big deal. Set up a little appointment with him. He's like going to meet you, you know, for lunch uh, down the road here at Guadalajara. And, you know, set up at 12 noon. And then you fall asleep, take a nap, and miss it. The president of the United States came to town. Whether or not you agree with his politics or not, it's the president. They have all the uh, Secret Service out there waiting. You don't even show up. This is the king of kings. And he's waiting. Our appetites are literally being a show of disregard and disrespect to the king. Listen to this, Samuel Brengel. I am acquainted with some people who know that tea and cake and candy injure them. Are you one of those people that know that certain foods actually affect your body in a bad way? They slow down your digestive system. They mess up your digestive system. They actually cause you to be drowsy. They call all, cause all sorts of fits, and they keep you awake at night. It's funny how we can even know of the negative effects that come to our body through certain behaviors, and yet we're like, but I'm doing it. We do. But they like these things, and so they indulge themselves at risk of grieving the Spirit of God and destroying their health, which, listen to this, which is the capital God has given them to do his work with. You've been given one body. 
You've been given health. And yet, you would risk that health under the banner of, hey, come on, it's my body. It actually technically isn't your body. If you want to get specific about it, it belongs to Jesus Christ, who purchased it with his blood. Your body is not your own. It was bought with a price. So no more of this justification. Hey, it's my body. I'm the one that's going to have to deal with all the ramifications. You know who else has to deal with it? The one who saved you. And the one who is building you into a vessel that is supposed to be fit for the master's use. The capital of the Christian. What do we have? We have bodily health. That's just one of our capital. I mean, we have health. And I know some of you could say, ah, speak for yourself, Eric. My body's wasting away. However, you are here and you're alert. You're alive on planet Earth. Therefore, you have something. You see, if you had no health at all, you'd be dead. But you're here. You have something, even if it be a scrap of what you originally had. You have bodily health. And I know many of us have wasted away so many years of our life and have not used the strength that we were given to do anything. However, you have it. Bodily health, financial resources. We are by far the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. And yet, we are beginning to turn so inward that we have lost even the notion of giving and serving and lending We only think about ourselves. And so that great capital that we've been given to change the world, to reach every creature for Jesus Christ, is almost a complete farce now in and amongst the modern Christians where we have more resources than any of the church throughout all of history. And yet we probably are serving the least and serving in the mission field less than ever before. Time on earth. You have time. For some of you, it's running out. But you have time. Some of you are young, and boy, this would be a great message to get when you're young. But you have time. It's limited, but it's capital. And without that time, you can do nothing. You know what the angels don't have any time on earth? They sit there and they long, but they can't. They have health and they have resource as far as that goes, but they don't have time. They don't live in our realm. They can't influence it the way we can. We have an opportunity. What are you doing with that capital? Our gender role, as a man or as a woman, maybe in history this has never been so critical as it is now. If men do not stand up and be men fully as a man ought to be, they are losing their capital. And the same is true with femininity. There is a glory that can only be made manifest in this generation when men wield their strength and when women wield their strength. When we are excusing it away, when we are trying to bypass it, when we're trying to look for a different explanation of it instead of going to the scriptures and saying, this is what God made me, and he made, it th- made me this way for a purpose. He put me in this time. He gave me this resource. He gave me this health. I'm using it. Our understanding and knowledge. Those in this room probably have more understanding and knowledge of the scriptures than probably entire nations combined. Think about it. What we have been given, that is capital. Yet how are you using it? And how about our thirst for more? Isn't it a funny thing that we, in this room, we have a thirst, we have a hunger for something. It is an appetite. We have a desire for more. Don't don't lose it. It's capital. Strong men retain riches. Are you retaining yours? Strong men retain, how about this, their capital. You have been given something, what are you going to do with it? You're going to maintain it and make sure that it is fully invested. Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. What has been committed to thy trust, to your trust? 
You just saw the list. You have the inheritance of the king. That's just natural stuff. That's where the appetites are dwelling. You have so much even more in Christ Jesus. We are proven by two things. What are those two things? First, how diligently we manage or caretake and monitor our capital for our king. That's one of the things. Now, a lot of people would say, see, yeah, that's why I'm a miser. That's why I'm Scrooge McDuck sitting on my piles of gold. No, but you're also measured by the second thing, and that is how willingly we share, give, and let go of our capital at the request of our king. Not at the request of the devil. Not at his temptation do we pour out our riches. Do we give up our bodily health? Do we give up our sexual purity? No, we do not do it at his bidding. We do it at God's bidding. God knows how to handle our capital. And so when he asks for our manhood, when he asks for our financial resources, when he asks for our time, we give it. Try it at the river. How are we handling our capital? So Gideon's horn blows. It's time for war. And all of us show up. Well, are we ready? Well, Maybe a good percentage, two-thirds of us leave because we're afraid. And so there's just a small lot of us left. And then we're tried at the river. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, This shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, This shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So God says he's going to try them. I almost did a whole study for you on the word try. It's extremely interesting. It is the word smelt, but which isn't like what you do with your nose. It's what you do with like rock or ore to get the gold or the silver, the, the fine metals out of it. You will put it under extreme heat and it will melt or liquefy the actual precious, uh, precious substance and it will, it will drain out and you will separate it out. You're separating out gold and silver from the rest of the ore. Throughout the ore, who cares about that? We got our gold and silver over here. And that's what God's doing. That's actually the word that is used. It means to separate out through trial. So there's a trial. What's the trial? It's the river. How are you doing at the river? Are you being separated out for God's purposes or are you looking like the rest of the masses? So many, so many of us as Christians actually don't mind looking like everyone else around us. We just want to make sure we go to heaven. We just want to make sure we somehow get through this life, but hey, I want my appetites. I don't care if I look like the rest of them. This is extremely important in your soul. You're being tested and proven at the river. Remember sheep and goats? Sheep off to the right side, goats off to the left. Remember wheat and tares? Mm-hmm. You see, in and amongst the wheat are tares. How is God going to be able to discern that which is true wheat? How is he going to be able to discern that which is really sheep? It demonstrates life. If it's not alive, then something's wrong with it. We are being proven. It's called the test of faith. We say, oh, I believe. And then he says, I'll test it. He's testing our faith. There's a river. That river is literally our test. Instead, most of us are just like, oh, I'm so glad there's a river there. So I can be a Christian and plant my face in that river too? That's not how it works. God is a remnant. He will defeat the powers of the Midianite host with 300. God is not looking for the masses. He's trying and testing the few. The six rivers of testing. How do you respond to the river at your feet when thirsty? I mean, it's one thing when you're not thirsty. Have you ever noticed that? 
You're very bold to say, I don't need to bend down. When you're not thirsty, it's when you're craving. It's when there's that want in your soul. That's when we're snagged. The stomach, to eat at impulse and craving, or letting the body define your need, puts the energy of the body into the stomach, dulls the spirit sensitivity, compromises the clarity of soul, and slows the body. The great men and women of Christianity past understood that the worst time to gorge yourself on food is right before you as a leader get up to preach. Because it actually dulls the senses and all the blood rushes to your stomach. And as a result, you are very lacking in your mental clarity. And so therefore, it makes far more sense to fast before you speak. Isn't that interesting? To go without and to restrain your appetite before you speak because your entire job is to help someone else not help yourself. So, do you see how we do that all the time? And you could say, yeah, Eric, you should take note of that. Yeah, but how about all of us are called to preach the gospel? Every single one of us are in a generation where people are dying to hear the word of God. And we are so caught up in our own digestive tract that we will be gluttons ourselves, plant our face in the river, and therefore lose our mental competence and clarity and our spiritual sensitivity at the most dire hour of need. The stomach tests. Now, I'm not saying you need to just do one specific thing, but what I want God to do in this time is to put his finger on things. And if he's putting your, his finger on your stomach, you'll probably know it. I remember this one scripture when I was in missionary school. Their God was their stomach. I remember seeing that, and I knew who my God was. I mean, it's like, yeah, God, Jehovah, but boy, who has precedence? My stomach. I don't know. I, I haven't shared it with the, the students, so it's probably a good time. Uh, I came into the cafeteria at uh, the missionary training school, and I would always look. There was like eight spots at every table, and so I'd always come in and look for the spot where there was missing students because they always had an exact amount of food. And I figured if there was like six, that would mean there'd be two extra pieces of food that I could somehow try and sneak. I always grew up and I ate unlimited amounts. My mom always had all you can eat. And then I went to college and I had about seven plates of food every night for dinner. And then I would go to Zip's hamburger stand and get five cheeseburgers. I could not get full. My dad's nickname in college was the garbage pail. And they never called me the garbage pail, but I was following in his footsteps. And so here I am at missionary training school, and guess what had ruled me? My stomach. I didn't know that, but when I came there and there was limited food, could you imagine if I went from college to, uh, to prison, where they're giving me one plate of rotten food a day? I mean, I don't know. I'm thank God for his grace and just leading me to, to this cafeteria instead where there was one plate, one croissant, one slice of turkey, and one slice of cheese. It's like, what a pathetic meal. And so I came in this one day, and I sat down at this table, and it was a table with, like, less people. So my strategy is they're passing around the plate of croissants. I put one on my plate and stuck one on my lap. And everyone's eating. I'm eating my croissant, dreaming of my second one. And I don't know, 15 minutes into the meal, some guy comes around, oh, I'm so sorry, guys. Oh. Oh, I hear, is anyone sat here? No, no, okay. Sits down, he goes, well, where's the food? There should be one more of those. And everyone's looking around going, I don't know what happened. I could have sworn there was eight here when we started. It's one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. Oh, 
Oh, oh, what's that doing here? Oh, here it is. May that not be you. So what are some of the ways that we can be tested and even be willing to rise up and say, God, train my soul? One of them is going completely without food. It's called fasting. And I know some of you are it's literally terrified at the notion. The fact that you're so terrified at the notion should declare something in the process. There's a fear of allowing this appetite to be curbed. Eating or drinking something more plain. Daniel, in his 21-day fast, ate no luxurious foods. They were plain foods, very specifically. In other words, he was focused in prayer and he was holding on saying, I will not allow any other appetite to curb me, to redirect me, to misdirect my soul. I am focused. And so to remove the luxuries is actually one of the spiritual disciplines. It does not mean that anything that is flavorful is wrong. It's just that we as Christians are willing to go without them purposely. And sometimes it's just for a season. But the point is, are you even willing This is where God is testing us because we should be willing to go without them forever if necessary. However, we start barking back, I don't like this, I don't want to do that. That's the whole issue. Your appetite is above God in your life. Do you remember Isaac? Isaac was at that place where God had to test Abraham and say, is Isaac above me or am I above Isaac in your heart? He says, go sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Wow, are you willing to lay down your Isaacs? Being watchful of those moments when just a little bite or a little slurp might be taken. In other words, those extra things that we can do to trim them back, to not just go after the extras. Sitting there on the table needs to be eaten. That's like just my philosophy in life. Food. And as a result, God has had to curb that to say, no, you are not driven by food in the presence of food. You're willing to even stop at a reasonable place. I know this is not the right week to be telling you this. What will others think? It's a good test. The spending. To spend and buy at impulse and craving or letting your wants define action, binds a life into financial servitude, distracts the mind from Christ, opens the door for anxiety, and puts a life under the control of money. How you handle food defines your health. How you handle money defines a good portion of your soul and your practical life. If you have no restraint in regards to these things, you will be put into situations that are not healthy. It could open the door for all sorts of things. It distracts the mind. It opens the door for anxiety and puts a life under the control of money. So the spending test. Fasten the spending on the unnecessaries. If it's unnecessary, are you willing to go without it? Relinquishing the right to purchase that one tantalizing item. Some of us are in such a place financially where we see something, we just get it. It's like, oh, I just felt like getting it. Well, did you need it? No, but I just felt like it. Some of us are thinking, wouldn't that be nice? But that's how a lot of people treat their credit card, too. Oh, I have credit. And so they go out, and they feel like it, so they buy it. Asking God to show you how to give, who to give to and how much. Well, that's a good test for us. Start with the premise that I need to be giving. Well, I'm a Christian. My appetite for me stuff. See, God has given you an appetite for this arena. You're actually built for the resources that God has given you. However, you need to be a giver, not a taker. And so just begin to ask God, so 
Who do I give to and how much? Think about giving, not about just receiving. Be willing to give away your resources even beyond what is normal or humanly sane. Mary of Bethany pouring out her spikenard on the feet of Jesus. Saving, choosing to put aside as a discipline rather than spend it all away. One of the, the statements of Andrew Carnegie that I was reading this week, who was the great steel magnate in early American history, one of the wealthiest men on planet Earth at the time, if not the wealthiest, he said, when we capitalists are looking for a man to invest in, one of our simple tests is, does he know how to save his money? That's their test. If the young man doesn't know how to save his money, well, then he's not going to handle the money that I give him well. Isn't that interesting? So you think about God, the ultimate capitalist, God who has all the resources and is looking for those to invest in, to take his resources and give them to. So how are you handling that which you do have? If you're not handling it well, do you think he's going to give you more? In other words, God is going to entrust you with more when you prove faithful with little. The sleeping. To sleep at impulse and craving, or letting the body define your need, leads to nervous disorder, depression, emotional vulnerability, greater susceptibility to anxiety, greater propensity to give away to drowsiness that the flesh dictates. This is actually a statement from Christian history that it was understood in the church that most nervous disorder came from oversleeping. When in actuality, most people think that it comes from not having enough. And so what you need to do is get more sleep. When in actuality, it makes the soul less taut and less firm. So to oversleep is actually to make the soul more vulnerable to the difficulties in your life and to make you more susceptible. I know it sounds funny, and I'm not going to try and prescribe anything here. This is not a prescription. But it's interesting to look at the great men and women of God that I admire and see how they handled sleep. One of the most convicting, that was one of the most convicting things about this week, was studying sleep and the great Christians in times past. There are Christians that have been absolutely resolved that there's no more than four hours of sleep that is needed a night. You know, because I don't know how many of you have heard the statistics today. It's eight to ten hours that is needed. If you're going to be healthy, you need it. And then there's another guy that is absolutely confident that it's five hours. And no more than five hours are, is, is needed. And if you get five hours and you do it consistently, you will be healthy. John Wesley believed it was six hours. And for his lifetime, basically, I mean, it must have been 40 or 50 years of his life, he got to bed at 10 o'clock every night and got up at four every night. And this is in the days when you had a hot water bottle at the bottom of your bed and you had an oil lamp uh, in England. Wow, you think it's hard because the hardest time for me to get out of bed is during the winter when it's just cold. You know, I'm nice and toasty under the covers. And when it's four in the morning, it's pitch black. Oh, that's extra hard. Okay, I mean, just get, I even get up early compared to most people on earth. But when I read John Wesley, it's like, oh, ouch, that one hurts. Listen to John Wesley. John Wesley, the last 12 years of his life, because he grew to be an old man, last 12 years of his life, he, he still got up at 4 every morning, got to bed at 10. Every night, and he was without any sickness for the last 12 years and extremely happy. That was his description of his life. He never had sickness. His body was always healthy. He got six hours. This, and so this is what he preached. Basically, and this, listen to this line. If you could, if you knew that you could have two more hours in every day, two more. You know how many hours that is in a week? That's 14 hours a week. That's like two business days. And for any of us that are businessmen in here, it's like two extra business days a week? I said, yeah, 
two extra business days a week to study, to pray. And even if you didn't study and pray, you could literally help provide for your family in those two hours. All of us are complaining about the lack of time. You see, John Wesley got to bed at 10 o'clock every night. He says, if you're going to start dealing with the morning, you need to first deal with the night. Because if you do not have any belts around your night habits, then you will never have a morning routine, ever. He goes through all these illustrations of men getting up in the morning for battle and winning the battle. Gideon, even in this story, it was in the early morning hours before the Midianites were awake that he crushed them. That's when he did it. It was the early morning. Most of us have no concept of the morning. We have a concept of the night. And so he was with Lord Byron. I don't know if you've ever heard that story. He was with Lord Byron. Lord Byron was the the number one person in all of England that everyone desired to have an audience with. And Lord Byron himself asked John Wesley to meet with him. And so John Wesley gets together for dinner with Lord Byron, and then it's, it's getting late. After they had eaten their meal, he stands up, and Lord Byron says, where are you going? He says, I have an appointment with the God of the universe. I dare not be tired, and I dare not be late. And he left. He's with one of the most important men in the world, and he rises up because his appointment with God Almighty was higher in his list of priorities. I don't know about you, but that's a hard thing to imagine any of us doing. And yet, that's the discipline, self-control, the egretea of soul to put priority on the things of heaven over the things of this earth. So the sleeping tests, to keep the hour and to go to bed early. John Wesley would call it keeping the hour. 10 o'clock, he was in bed. Oh, that's hard. Well, that's exactly the point. For us, we're too unkempt and we're too undisciplined in our life to ever think of keeping an hour, to keep the hour and rise consistently and early. And what happens? The first time you start doing this, you do it for one day, you do it for two days, and then what happens? Something weird happens in the third day, and it throws you off. What he says is you still get up the third day because you got to bed at 3 in the morning that night, and 4 is coming around pretty quick. He says keep the hour. Keep the hour. And he says even if you're not feeling well, even if you have a headache, even if you're feeling kind of sick, keep the hour. In other words, you tell your body what to do. You don't let your body tell you what it's going to do. Yeah, I know. I'm living in a human body too. I don't like that statement any more than you probably do. To deliberately choose to redeem more hours of your day for prayer and study. To never try and negotiate with your body when the alarm goes off, but rather command your body to rise up. Have any of you ever laid in bed and had a discussion with your body about if it was appropriate to get up or not? (laughs) You decided the night before that you were going to get up, and then when it comes to that time, you're like... Well, I don't know. God, what do you think? (laughs) Try and act all spiritual about it, too. Bring God into it. God's like, yeah, let's talk. You ready? And we're like, yeah, God, I'm just trying to discern you right now if you really want me to get up or not. (laughs) Don't negotiate with your body. Don't talk with your body. Don't, you know, discuss terms. Your body will always say, go back to sleep. I don't know if any human body in the history of the world has ever said, get up. To not excuse yourself based on how you feel or based on when you got to bed the night before. Stay watchful even in sleep and never accept anything in the night season to sway you from full focus on Jesus Christ and complete consistency with his pure nature. One of the things that I've talked with the men in here about is dreams. Dreams are not an escape. It's not a time to stick your face into the river. The night season is an expression of a subconscious before God. And if your subconscious is bathed in the spirit of God, And what you expect is to think and meditate upon the things of heaven at night, even when you sleep. 
God watches over and monitors your sleep. You do not indulge appetite when you go to bed at night. That is not some bonus territory of your life that is excused from your life. And that's why many of you feel guilty even when you wake up in the morning and you feel like you did something in your dreams that you didn't know you were doing. It's because it is still you. It's an expression of you, and that must be guarded. 24-7, there is no me time. It's all God time. The sexuality dimension of our life. To feed sexual craving at the impulse of the body or letting physical wants dictate behavior leads to clouding of spiritual life, dumbness of soul, numbness of spirit, leads to vulnerability of, of greater and more damaging moral failure. If you allow for any sexual appetite to have any sway over you, whether it's with your eyes of where you look, whether it's with your body at any level, what that does is that clouds your reasoning. It clouds your discernment. And it also makes you extremely vulnerable for greater failure. So it's when you trifle or take lightly the small things that you become vulnerable to the bigger. It's the same thing. You plant your face in that river and you indulge, the Midianites will get you when your face is down. The sexuality tests. To immediately look away, to not turn that dangerous thought even one revolution within your mind. The way I say it to the guys is when you're driving down the road and you see the billboard. You didn't put the billboard there. It's not your responsibility to you know, tear down the billboard. You're just driving, minding your own business. However, what you do with what you just saw is of the utmost importance. If you see something that you know is bait for your soul and for one of your appetites, you immediately put it in the dungeon of your soul and you do not turn it one revolution in your mind. Not one. You do not till it into the soil of your heart once. You immediately scrap it. You immediately say no. You immediately discard it. You have to be aggressive in your soul. You cannot allow appetite to gain any advantage over you. To guard the heart and not let it give way nor let slip out even one unguarded emotion. This heart is not meant to just be blubbery and loose. It is meant to be firm and taut and toned. And so therefore, like I remember this one guy, I was at this one ministry and he was just a great young man. And there were these girls at this ministry that were really struggling. They actually sent him a letter saying, you're causing us to stumble because of your godliness. No, the godliness, he came to me for counsel on that one. He's like, what am I supposed to do? Throw out my integrity, start acting like a jerk? I mean, what am I supposed to do? And I said, it is their responsibility to have a guarded heart. The fact that they've never seen a young man like this before made them vulnerable. However, you are not a victim to emotion. The girls in here are not meant to just have a flabby heart or flabby soul and just give way once you see a godly man. Ellerslie would be miserable to try and go through. You're meant to be guarded and firm. Stop the flirting. That's a test for you. You're willing to do that? Stop the flirting. Stop trying to get others to see you, to find you appealing, and to notice your qualities. To give up the pursuit, to let God write your love story, hand over the pen to God, and turn your attentions away from relationships with the opposite sex, and focus completely on a relationship with him. One of the ways that we can begin to move forward in allowing these appetites to be dealt with is just hand it over to God. You know what? If God wants me to be married, he can deal with that. Are you willing to trust him with that? Guard your purity to maintain the capital of purity and don't let anything rob from the vault. So now the speaking. This is the fifth appetite that we need to deal with. To allow the tongue to speak anything and everything it craves or wants to speak Anything it wants to speak leads to every form of evil. Have you ever had it where you just sort of want to say something and you're just 
feeling really upset. That's one of the greatest dangers of instant communication that we have today with email and Twitter and phone. It used to be that you had to sit down and write a long letter. Now, you can just let it fly. And you are held accountable for every word. Not just all the bad words you say, but every idle word spoken. Let alone all this junk that we are spewing out because, hey, I just needed to get that off my chest. You see, this is an appetite. It's an appetite of expression where we want to be able to say things. We want to be able to articulate things. We want to really dig in at times. So to allow the tongue to speak anything and everything it craves or wants to speak leads to every form of evil. An unbridled tongue is a fire starter. It starts the fires of gossip, lies, contention, division, backbiting, envy, unforgiveness, bitterness, and resentment, and the list could go on. The speaking tests. You ever thought of fasting from speaking altogether? In other words, give it up for an hour? Even for an hour would be a massive adventure for many of us. Could you imagine just to figure out what that would be like for an hour, let alone a day? Maybe a week, maybe longer. Or fasting from speaking on certain subjects until proper spiritual governance is established. In other words, if this subject ever comes up, you've already made it clear in your soul, nope, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to speak on that. It's just too much of a danger point for you. You recognize those danger points and you don't touch them. If you know if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Don't allow for that appetite to control you. How about relinquishing the right to speak every thought and only speaking the thoughts that are edifying and life-giving to others? You have a lot of thoughts that may go through your head, and those things need to be cleaned up. You're not supposed to just let every thought run rampant through your mind. However, a lot of us think, since we have a thought, we should just let it fly. No, just because you have a thought doesn't mean it needs to go airborne. So how about beginning to only speak that which gives life? Give away words of strength. You ever thought of encouraging people? Ask God to show you who to encourage and how to encourage with your tongue. Purposely do it. Stop the gossip that starts on your lips and don't participate in the gossip that starts on someone else's. Words spoken hastily and with emotion are usually words that shouldn't have been spoken. Take time to pause, weigh, pray, and seek God's answer. If you are angry, if you are upset, very likely you should not be speaking. Now, I know that God called, or Jesus called the Pharisees a brood of evil vipers and a brood of vipers, and he called them whitewashed tombs. Uh, in other words, there is a time to speak forcibly and to even say things that aren't pleasant. However, we must be governed by the Spirit in our speaking. Jesus only spoke what the Father was speaking, so obviously the Father thought the Pharisees were a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. And if that's what Father God is saying, and he's saying, it's time to speak. Usually you don't want to speak in those situations. you got a crowd of Pharisees around you, and if you say that, they're going to crucify you. And God says, speak. <laughs> but when you're wanting to say, and I know all of us know what that's like. Someone has said that one cutting remark to us, and we're already turning over a nice phrase in our mind. It's like, I could say that. And then the problem with most of us is we plant our face in the river and we say it. And we don't realize that it's actually compromising our soul in doing it. The searching. We need to figure things out. Remember that craving for information? Eh, that's sort of like this. Or how about the woman that just wants the, the tidbit of gossip? There's this appetite in us for information. To allow the soul to mentally wander and explore wheresoever the cravings or intrigues of the mind may lead is to set up the soul for every conceivable disaster. Such looseness of mind is the foundation of gossip, 
the framework of mental preoccupation, the hearth for all wonderlust away from Christ, and the single greatest distraction from everything true, honest, just, pure, lovely, virtuous, praiseworthy, and of good report. If it doesn't match with the Word of God, you don't stick your mind on it. You don't search it out. You don't try to find the answer to it. That's the most dangerous thing I would say about the Internet is its constant bait to, we could call it wanderlust, where you desire to go on a journey. I want to be taken somewhere. Someone give me a link. Someone give me a link to something intriguing. And so if you start going to any type of news column or Hollywood gossip column, I mean, you could literally be driven into the dirt. There's always some fantastic statement. And that's why when you're walking through the uh, checkout aisle at the grocery store, what are they sticking there? They're sticking all the fantastic lines to bait you in. If you allow your mind to go on those things and to seek out such information, it will kill you. It's gossip is what it is. It is not a focus point of what Jesus Christ himself commands us to stick our mind on. The searching tests eliminate the distracting sources of information, i.e. news sources, websites, email, texting, television, magazines. For some of us, it might be good to fast some of those things, maybe for a long time. Stop the edgy conversations and the I-need-to-know-more conversations that always hang out on the precipice of gossip. We're very good at this in the church because we're so spiritual about it. But we get close. I call them edgy conversations. So they, I just need to know more about that. You know that there's something there. You know that there's information. But you come in, it's like, oh, I just really care about them. Do you have any information so that I could be praying? Be very watchful in your soul. That is seeking out information, not for the right purposes. Because if you know someone has need, just pray. You don't always need to know all the details. You need to know enough, and that is someone has need in the body. They have a burden. Now you pray. Limit your computer and phone times or cut them out altogether for a space of time. Some of us are ruled by dings and bleeps and beeps and buzzes. In other words, we are controlled and we are so fascinated. What is it when you're working on a project and your email beeps or blings or what is the term for it? Rings? No, that's not ring. It goes ding. Have you noticed how hard it is to not find out? I think I used the illustration that Lowe's, uh, Lowe's what is it? Lowe's hard, Home Store. I don't remember what it's called. I get like Lowe's. I, I click off of what I'm doing. It's like Lowe's Home Improvement. That's what it is. Lowe's home improvement. I just lost my mental flow in my study of scripture to see that I got an email from Lowe's home improvement. Uh -huh. How many of us have been baited? Get the water beneath our feet and we plant our face right in it. Right when God is speaking to us, a ding can get us off course. How about we give up the ding? How about when the ding comes, we do one of two things. We either ignore it or turn off the ding. I mean, it's so masterfully brilliant that it's shocking to us that we do not need to be controlled by dings and bleeps and buzzes. The natural cravings of the body, the six arenas through which the glory of God is most manifest. Now listen to this. I've talked about the six arenas, the appetites, through which we are most vulnerable and through which basically our lives have become destitute. And they have led us to a point of crying out, saying, God, is there anything that can save me? And then Jesus does come, but most of us don't realize he didn't just save us from the penalty of us giving way to our appetites. He saved us from our appetites having control over our bodies anymore. That's huge. So, 
The six arenas through which the glory of God is most manifest. Now, this is really amazing. The six arenas that are most dangerous for our soul are actually the six arenas, when dealt with properly, that we will reveal the glory of God most clearly. When you learn to have restraint in these areas, the glory of God is seen more clearly to a world that is under the control of appetite than in any other arena. The appetite for food and drink. When a man is not or a woman is not controlled by this, it's actually an arena through which the glory of God can be made manifest. The appetite for the possession of things, when you are not controlled by things, it actually is a demonstration to the world. The appetite for sleep, well, we can understand that. If you ever saw a disciplined life like John Wesley, even when you hear it, you have to admit, it's like, wow. It's very impressive. And yet John Wesley himself says, you want to know the secret for this? Don't try and do it on your own. Hazardous for anyone who would try and do this on their own. This is the power of the Spirit. But this is what the Spirit of God does in us. We are willing, and then he trains us through it. The appetite for sensual pleasure the appetite for expression, the appetite for information. These are the arenas through which God's glory will be made manifest in our life. Listen to this scripture. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Who would have ever thought that eating and drinking could be done unto the glory of God? Well, look at Gideon's men. They did it right. Circumspect, with swords still available at their side, eyes wide open. Whether you Eat or drink. Do it all properly. The way God has assigned us to do it. The two rules of restraint. Don't consider even for a moment what you are saying no to, but rather always remember what you are saying yes to. As we get through this, and I, I don't know exactly how you're doing, but when we start to touch on these things, it's just we're very open to conviction. Okay, and I, I said conviction, not condemnation, but we're also open to condemnation. Condemnation is going to come from the devil in a message like this. You're nothing. You've messed up. There's no hope for you. That's not coming from God. God convicts. It's a little sting. It makes us uncomfortable. And we gulp a few times and we think, wow, yeah, that's not me. I'm, I'm letting my appetites rule me. That's conviction, but conviction always offers hope. In this process where you have a wrestling match, I do not want you to focus on what you're being asked to give up. When you're thinking about your food or your, for some of you, it might have been chai tea and root beer, that God's putting his finger on saying, are you willing to give that up for me? <gasps> well, God, you wouldn't ask for that. Are you willing is what I'm asking. Will you lay down Isaac? Well, Isaac's good. Yeah, Isaac is good. There's nothing wrong with Isaac. But he can't be above me. He can't rule your decision making. God must rule your decision making. So don't consider what you're saying no to, but rather always remember what you were saying yes to. You're saying yes to the king of kings. In practicing restraint, you are saying no to temporal pleasure and life deterioration that follows, and the life deterioration that follows. You're saying no to death, basically. And meanwhile, you're saying yes to God, the excellence of virtuous living, and the pleasures that will never fade, even for all eternity. The second rule of restraint is don't measure restraint by the bare ground which it at first necessitates but by the luscious green garden of life that springs forth out of that bare ground. So here's what we have. We have a piece of ground, and it's covered with, it's green. It's weeds, though. And, you know, the, the thistle has a flower on it. We're like, see, there's a flower. And, you know, you walk through, it's like, ah, ooh, ooh, ah. it's prickly. However, it's green. But what does restraint mean? 
the first thing that restraint does is it clears off the ground. And it's just like bare ground. We're like, that's legalism. You see, we don't want to give up our green, but we need the life that comes from God. So the first step in dealing with some of these things is we have to be willing to let go of things that have controlled us. And when we do, at first it feels like we have bare ground and everything's just got really dull and boring. However, what comes out of that bare ground, that is the seedbed for the most beautiful, luscious garden of Eden that you've ever seen. Heaven grows there. But you must be willing to say no to the things of this world to allow the things of heaven to grow up in you. If you do not say no to the things of this world and a little flower of God begins to grow, what's going to happen? It's going to be choked out by the weeds. You see, if you don't deal with your appetites, then the things that God is growing up in your life are going to be choked out. The three captives in Babylon, do you remember them? They show up in Babylon and there's the rich foods and they say, no, 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 no. Would you test us, they even say. We'll prove it. You feed us. And it was this very simple, bland, boring diet that Eric Ludy isn't attracted to at all. Their restraint proved them stronger healthier and more capable than others and ready rulers of a nation. You see, restraint actually demonstrates to everyone around you that true health comes out of obeying God, not impulse and appetite. And so, almighty men of God have learned to deny themselves and keep their bodies under. And God has set their souls on fire, helped them to win victory against all odds and bless the whole world. This is something that Philip Hartman sent me, and it comes from a writing that Richard Wormbrandt put together called Preparing for the Underground Church. I was so deeply convicted. I was already convicted by this message, and then I read this. This is about preparing to be tortured, preparing to be imprisoned. Are you ready, is his question. He says, I don't think you're ready, so let's go to work. I tell you what, we need a whole series of teaching just based on this one article that he wrote. But this is one little section of it, and it is so powerful. The preparation for underground work is deep spiritualization. As we peel an onion in preparation for its use, so God must peel from us what are mere words, sensations of our enjoyments in religion in order to arrive at the reality of our faith. Jesus has told us that whosoever will follow him will have to take up their cross, and he himself showed how heavy this cross can be. We have to be prepared for this. We have to make the preparation now before we are imprisoned. In prison, you lose everything. So he's basically saying, look, if you want to succeed in having nothing, then you need to be prepared to have nothing. In other words, right now in your life, you should have nothing. It's called poor in spirit. It doesn't mean you don't have a house. It doesn't mean you don't have a car. It doesn't mean you don't have clothes. It's that they don't have you. And as a result, you're able to give them up or relinquish them at every turn. Your appetite is not leading and governing. God is. We have to make the preparation now before we are imprisoned. In prison, you lose everything. You are undressed and given a prisoner's suit. No more nice furniture, nice carpets, or nice curtains. You do not have a wife or husband anymore, and you do not have your children. You do not have your library, and you never see a flower. Nothing of what makes life pleasant remains. Nobody resists who has not renounced the pleasures of life beforehand. What a line. Guess who saw a lot of men fail in this situation? 
14 years of imprisonment, this man saw Christians come in and fail. And he also saw Christians come in and thrive in prison and turn that prison cell into their chapel to share the gospel. But there's two very different sorts. And he says, nobody resists who has not renounced the pleasures of life beforehand. I personally use an exercise. This is hilarious. I live in the United States of America. Can you imagine what an American supermarket looks like? You find there are many delicious things. I look at everything and say to myself, I can go without this thing and that thing. This thing is very nice, but I can go without. This third thing, I can go without too. I visited the whole supermarket and did not spend $1. I had the joy of seeing many beautiful things and the second joy to know that I can go without. Whatever that is, I think we need it. I'm uncomfortable in this message, and so I'm guessing some of you, at least maybe one or two of you, might be uncomfortable as well. This is, for whatever reason, it touches and strikes from different angles in our soul that we're not used to in the American church. And there's probably a few people that are maybe upset with me as well. However, I'm walking through this as well. I'm not a proponent of legalism. Never been a fan. I have no desire to try and encourage your soul to try and appease God and please God through works of righteousness. However, when you come unto Jesus Christ by faith and you receive that opportunity to enter into the throne room of grace, to receive the Holy Spirit in your life so that you could live a life other than this world, so that you could showcase the behavior of Jesus in your every moment, every attitude, every thought, whether you're eating or drinking, whether you're lying down to sleep, anyone who watches your life says that's what Jesus looks like. The way you handle all your appetites is a testimony to the glory of God. You have the opportunity for this. It's been handed to you. Please, says Jesus, show the world what I'm like. To forsake that is a very, very dangerous thing. To spurn it is a very, very dangerous thing. We have things that we relish and we crave, and in America, they're very rarely ever touched on. Today, we're getting close to them, and I don't think we're even getting that close. But we're getting close to it, and it's very uncomfortable for us. And I say, praise God. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.